All right, let's turn back to John's Gospel this morning, chapter 15. And today we come to another self-description of Jesus using the formula, I am. And in this way, the Lord has shared with his disciples aspects of his person and his relationship to those who follow him. So far, the Lord has said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheepfold. I am the good shepherd. And I am the way, the truth, and the life. And through these metaphors, Jesus shows he is the Savior of mankind and all that we need for spiritual life and sustenance. This morning, we come to another aspect of that revelation as Jesus is in the upper room shortly before he will be arrested, tried, and crucified. And he's encouraging his disciples with this saying that I am the vine, the true one. The vineyards are a familiar sight for us who live here in the Finger Lakes, and it was no less familiar in the days of uh, Jesus. Great horticulture was a part of the health and the livelihood of the nation of Israel. And in Old Testament times, the Lord alluded to Israel through this symbol of a grapevine. In Psalm chapter 80 or Psalm 80, she is described as a vine taken out of Egypt and planted in the fertile hills of the promised land where the Lord cultivated and pruned her. During the days of the Maccabees, some of their coinage had the imprint of a vine. And if you lived in the days of Christ, you would go to the temple and you would see boldly engraved above that temple that Herod had uh, revised and reconstructed a golden vine representing the nation of Israel. And it's likely that at this time of the year, the springtime, that there was much pruning going on in the countryside. There may have been piles of dead branches burning or waiting to be burned on those Jewish hillsides. And an allegory of a vine and branches was a perfect visual picture of the relationship between Jesus and his disciples that would remain after his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. So this morning, we're going to consider this allegory of the branches abiding in the vine, or the disciples, of course, abiding in Christ. And there are three figures involved here. The first being Jesus, who, of course, is the true vine, in whom his disciples must abide. Next is God the Father, who acts as the vine dresser, or the a farmer who prunes the branches, which makes it possible for them to bear more fruit. And finally, we see the branches, which are Christ's disciples, his followers of all ages. And the main purpose of the branch is to bear fruit that honors the Lord. And in order to bear fruit, we then must abide in the vine, and we must submit to the pruning of the Father. And when we do, we will bear much fruit for his honor and his glory 
And some of that fruit is really kind of described here as the effects of abiding in the vine. So let's ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we again are thankful for who you are, for all you've done for us, for Jesus coming into the world and dying on the cross to save us. And we're thankful, Lord, for all of these figures of speech, these metaphors that describe for us what he is like and what our relationship to him should be like. We're thankful, Lord, that he uh, is the true vine that gives life and sustenance to the branches. And as we go through this passage, we pray, Lord, you will help us to have the desire to abide in you, that we might bear fruit uh, that will give honor and glory to the Lord Jesus and be an example to those who follow you as well as uh, something that may draw others to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, let's take a look, first of all, at the uh, first six verses here in chapter uh, 15. And we see here the allegory of abiding in the true vine. And we're first of all going to look at the vine itself, who, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he gives vitality to the branches. And it's interesting because the true vine stands in contrast to Israel, who was the unfaithful vine. Although Israel in the Old Testament was portrayed as a vine, it became a vine that failed to abide in the Lord and hence could not produce fruit unto righteousness and in a sense was really taken out and burned. So let's think about that for a moment. I want you to turn, if you will, back to Psalm 80. And in Psalm 80, we have a depiction of Israel as a vine and what happened to it and what God had to do. So let's take a look at a few verses here in Psalm 80. We'll begin at verse 8. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow, and the mighty cedars with its bows. She sent out her bows to the sea and her branches to the river. So that is an indication that the Lord brought the nation out of slavery, out of Egypt, planted her in the promised land, and did everything he he could to cultivate her and make her produce, and at times this was true of her. But we come to verse 12, and the question is asked, why have you broken down her hedges so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit? The boar out of the woods uproots it, and the wild beast of the field devours it. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and visit this vine and the vineyard which your right hand has planted and the branch that you made strong for yourself. It's burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. So this is an indication that Israel had to be judged because she would not abide in the Lord and produce fruit. So God eventually, although he tried to prune it, they would not submit, and he had to judge them through uh, taking them out into exile. And then we have the hope 
of return in verse 17. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. Then he will not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. So that's an indication of the coming of one who would serve the Lord and he would act as a true vine. And we see that now back in John chapter 15. Also in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 5, the unfruitful vineyard that God planted and cultivated only produced wild grapes. It too must be destroyed. Jeremiah repeats the same thing as he calls Israel the degenerate vine in chapter 2 and verse 21. And then Ezekiel 15 depicts a vine that is good only for burning and one that God must destroy. And all that, of course, in the context of coming exile if they would not abide in the vine and produce the fruit God intended for her. Jesus, going back to chapter 15, he's in the upper room. He's been teaching this week uh, before his crucifixion, and he recently told a parable of a householder who planted a vineyard and left it in the hands of caretakers. But what happened? He sent some servants to collect the fruit, but those servants were beaten. Finally, he decides he'll send his son thinking they will receive him, but what do they do? They kill him. Well, that's a parable of the nation that rejected the Lord and did not bear fruit under righteousness. And it's at the time right now, they're going to reject the Lord Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord. Jesus foretold the results of these actions when he said, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruit thereof. And, of course, that's predicting the coming of the church. So all this shows the Lord's good intention of making Israel spiritually productive and fruitful, but he could not because they were faithless and disobedient. In contrast to this, Jesus comes and he says, I am the vine, literally the true one. In contrast to the nation of Israel who failed to be the servant of the Lord. So where the nation of Israel and really all people failed, to be obedient to God and become fruitful servants. Jesus was successful. He became the one who is the obedient servant of God, who would give his life for the nation and the world. And it's through the true vine, of course, that we uh, obtain eternal salvation and the sustenance we need to live for him and bear fruit every day. So Christ then is the main trunk of the vine that gives spiritual vitality to the branches. He sustains them, strengthens them, and causes them to bear fruit. Now, in the next couple of verses, verses 2 and 3, we see that God the Father is the vine dresser. As he says, my Father is the vine dresser, and then it tells what he does in the pruning process. So the Father, first of all, removes branches that do not bear fruit in verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now we have to be careful about our interpretation here because this is an allegory. Uh, we can't, uh, we can't uh, derive every single aspect of it and make an application. And we can't construe this to mean that once a person is in Christ, then somehow they can get out of Christ. So there are a couple of interpretations here we want to look at. First of all, 
Jesus may be referring to false professors. They seem in close proximity to Jesus, but bear no fruit. Uh, They appear on the outside to have a relationship to him, but you don't see any real evidence of this in their lives. And so uh, Judas would have fallen into this category. Judas was a disciple. He was chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ. He appeared to be among the believing and the faithful. He was involved in ministry, but Jesus knew his heart from the very beginning. And there's no verse in the New Testament that does not have in the same verse the name of Jesus and the fact that he was a traitor. And so he appeared to be a disciple, but he was false. And at this point in time, he's gone out to uh, betray the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's one of the ones taken away. He's not present here as Jesus is teaching. Now, some believe uh, because this particular verb can be translated to lift up, that this means that God the Father will lift up this unproductive branch and do whatever he can to make it fruitful. And that is true in some cases in the scriptures, but it really doesn't fit the context here. And of the ten commentaries I consulted, only one of them took this interpretation. So I believe the first interpretation seems to be the best here. In the context, Judas was revealed as one who was not clean. Jesus said, uh, you're, you're clean, but not all. And it wasn't long that, uh, after that that Judas went out to betray him. And we think of the parable of the soils, how some of the seed falls on uh, the ground, and before it can take root, the devil comes along and takes it away. But then some seed does take root, but because of uh, the heat of uh, oppression or whatever it might be, that fruit doesn't last. And then some falls among the uh, thorns and uh, the weeds, and it never produces fruit. So I think the idea here is there are some who may make a profession of of, uh, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, but because they're not true, God will somehow take them away through trial, temptation, the allurement of riches, or other means, and make it evident that they're not of the true vine. If we profess to know Christ, the Bible teaches will begin to bear fruit. It may take a long time. It may be a difficult process, but it does occur. And some more immediate than others. But if there's no fruit at all, one's profession is suspect. Now, the next thing the Father does, it says in verse 2, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So this is the pruning process. And the verb that's used here really is uh, related elsewhere more to cleansing than to pruning. But it does indicate here that Jesus is dealing not with uh, literal grapevine branches, but with people. And the Lord cleanses fruit-bearing Christians to enable them to bear even more fruit. And using that metaphor of pruning suggests that the Lord is snipping away things in our life that are unproductive, 
things that don't belong there. And uh, he's going to use his word and the Holy Spirit to do that. Jesus goes on to say uh, that you already, uh, you're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So they're in the vine. They're beginning to produce some fruit. They're cleansed spiritually, but now they're going to go on and they're going to bear more fruit and become more like Christ. And the Lord is going to take them through processes that will help them to do this. And you and I know that at times that process can be very painful. It involves giving up things we once loved, but do not please the Lord. It may involve trials and difficulties and tests. We're all going to go through hardships and difficulties. Uh, Jesus said you have tribulation in the world. But these things are meant by God to increase our faith, to help us grow in our dependence upon the Lord, and to uh, bear fruit in our life like patient endurance and things of that nature. So the whole process, as we first get saved, and we move on to glory is one of growth, and the Lord does the pruning to help us to grow and bear more fruit as we proceed in our relationship to the Lord. Now, in verses 4 through 6, obviously the disciples are the branches when you take out the allegory into real life. And the disciples uh, abide in Christ, and they bear fruit. Those are the two necessary functions of the branch. They are abiding in the vine, and as they abide in the vine, they will bear fruit. And as time goes on, that fruit will increase. So let's take a look here, first of all, at this concept of abiding in the vine. The verb abide occurs seven times in verses 4 through 7, and an additional three more times down in verses 9 and 10. Now, if you look at verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. And that seems to be an imperative, a command. He's commanding us to abide in himself as he abides in us through salvation. So this is conveying the necessity to remain in the vine uh, so that you can bear fruit. In the present tense there, it's a present imperative. So this is kind of an ongoing thing. Uh, We're to abide in Christ every day. This is something that is to characterize us as his people. Now we come to verse 6, and again, we have a little bit of an interpretative problem. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. I take that eschatologically. In other words, the the future gathering of all to the Lord. And the idea there is that if someone fails to come to Christ, they fail to repent of their sins and begin to abide in him, well, there's a day coming when they're going to be cast out. They have no means of having spiritual life. And so they're going to be gathered up at the end of the age and they're going to be destroyed. Of course, um, that happens at the end of life. If you haven't trusted Christ, well, you've proven to be someone who was never in the vine in the first place. So uh, we're looking there, I think, to the future. 
when the wheat will be separated from the tares. But let's get back to the idea of what it means to abide in Christ. And this, uh, this term suggests uh, passivity. Uh, a branch simply needs to be where it's at, stay where it's at, attached to the vine. And of course, we, we can't think of a branch uh, purposely separating itself from a vine because it's not uh, a, a living, thinking uh, uh, piece of vegetation. But when we bring it into the human sphere, it does suggest passivity, but also activity. A branch is to remain in the vine if it's going to stay alive and if it's going to bear grapes. That's the natural state of abiding. And this verb to abide <clears throat> means to remain in, to continue in, to dwell in, to reside in, to rest in. And it's suggestive of our faith or our trust. We need to keep trusting the Lord to give us his vitality and to produce the fruit we find everywhere in the New Testament. So we, first of all, have to trust the Lord Jesus to provide for us all that we need to bear the fruit that he intends for us. And again, we're people, we're not branches, so we make choices. We exercise our will, and as such, we actively make choices that will help us abide in Christ, and we reject those things that would prevent us from abiding in Christ. So what do we do? We read and study his word. That's where we get the nutrients from. That's where we get the knowledge from. Uh, that's obvious. We join a good Bible preaching church where we can get the word of God and we can get the fellowship of the believers, which is important for the saints. We pay attention to our relationship to the vine, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't neglect it. Uh, we don't let it slip. We, we are attentive to these things. So we don't just let go and let God, as some people say. We're actively choosing to reside in Christ. And this abiding then will result in the production of fruit. <clears throat> so as the branches abide in Christ, they are going to bear fruit. Uh, you've probably noticed a plant in our area that seems to grow everywhere that looks like a grapevine. Maybe it's some kind of a wild grapevine. I don't know. But I have uh, too much of it in my yard. <clears throat> and I've never seen any fruit on it. It's really kind of good for nothing, and it messes up all other kinds of things and goes up trees and the side of the barn and everything. <clears throat> and all you need to do is you got to pull it out and get rid of it, take it out, burn it, whatever. But it's without value because it doesn't look nice and it doesn't produce anything. So we take it out, we get rid of it. That branch is not fulfilling a good purpose. God's will for every Christian who is a branch in the vine to bear fruit. And note the progression of thought here in the text. In verse 2, <coughs> uh, a branch that bears fruit is going to be pruned. Why? So it can bear more fruit. It doesn't just say at one level. 
We want it to be as productive as it possibly can. Instead of maybe uh, one or two clumps of grapes, we can get it to develop many more than that. So the branch bears some fruit. It's purged to bear more fruit. Then in verse 5, Jesus says, He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. So here's the the growth in that uh, production of fruit. And then if you get over to verse 16, you're going to find fruit that remains, present tense, or it continues. The process doesn't ever stop until you die or the Lord comes. Notice that verse 16 also says, um, that I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, which suggests something more than just fruit within, but also fruit without that we'll look at a little bit later. So in the first six verses here, Jesus is the one who gives us original life. And in that life, as we abide in him, uh, we're going to produce fruit. And God the Father is in the process of pruning us and cleansing us so that that fruit can grow and develop and uh, we can become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look now at some of the effects of this abiding in the vine. And we get a little bit more specific here as to what type of fruitfulness we can expect in the believer. So fruitfulness of disciples abiding in the vine are suggested in the rest of the passage that we read. And there are at least seven indications of fruitfulness in the life of a disciple who abides in Christ. And all of these are familiar to you. They should be familiar to you by now. So we're not going to spend tons of time on it. But you also can measure your own fruitfulness by the things that Jesus says here. So let's go through these this morning. First of all, a fruitful disciple develops a productive prayer life. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me, which is necessary to bear fruit, and my words abide in you, the place where we get the information about the fruit, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. So you're going to develop a prayer life a life depending upon God for the things that you need and the things that you desire. And also, <clears throat> uh, this is mentioned in the last part of verse 16, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. So one who's abiding in Christ is going to want to pray to God the Father. And we're going to ask God for certain things. We're going to expect an answer for those things. But there's always a qualification. There's always something we have to be thinking about when we are praying. And that is, we pray in Christ's name. Now, that's not just the formula we use to end our prayers. That is actually teaching us something that we pray within the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask for things that are in the will of God. And if they're not in the will of God, we're willing not to have that prayer answered. And we could 
preach a whole sermon on this, but you know what I'm getting at. We don't ask God selfishly. We ask God within his will and his desire for our life, and that's going to relate again to this growth in in spiritual fruit. The closer we abide in Christ, the more we're going to understand what we ought to pray for, how we ought to pray, and how we can expect God to answer those prayers. And the importance of our own needs will diminish over time as we learn to pray for others and their needs as well. So if prayer is an area of fruitfulness, how productive are you? How closely does this indicate that you're abiding in Christ? The second thing that we need to be thoughtful of is that a fruitful disciple brings glory to God. Look at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So have you thought about that? The more fruit you bear, the greater glory you bring to God. And uh, uh, that's the way it should be. Paul said, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Doesn't that make sense to you? We should not be doing anything for our own glory or recognition or of that of anybody else, including our own family. It all should be to the glory of God. God is pleased when you and I bear fruit of righteousness in our life. And he can't be glorified by anything that's selfish, uh, lustful, uh, ambitious as far as uh, uh, promoting ourselves Our purpose in life is fulfilled when we realize that all we do brings glory to God. Thirdly, a fruitful disciple displays Christ's love. Now, we've been talking about that a lot lately, especially as we've been looking uh, in the book of Philippians. But Jesus, be reminded, is speaking here uh, uh, partially of the love of God that is shown or displayed in him. In verse 9, he says, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Now you abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now obviously, there is perfect love within the confines of the Trinity. Between the Father and the Son, especially as Jesus was in the world. But the Lord Jesus displayed his love for God by obeying what God had him do and completing his mission. And of course, that was going to the cross of Calvary. And he proved his love for us as his disciples in doing that as well because he gave his life in exchange for ours that our penalty of sin might be paid. But now he's conveying to the disciples, as God has loved me and I have loved you, now you have the responsibility to love one another. And that's one of the main emphases of the teachings of the New Testament. The greatest fruit you'll ever bear is the fruit of love. And of course, we know this is self-sacrificing love. As the Lord Jesus goes on and presents something that disciples probably didn't yet quite understand in verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. 
In the next few hours, that's exactly what Jesus is going to do for his disciples and for all those who call upon him for salvation. He's going to go to the cross and lay down his life for each one of us. They don't fully understand that yet. It's not going to hit them until really several days later. But they begin to develop this love after Christ ascends back into heaven, and uh, they begin to uh, preach it, they begin to live it, they begin to write it. Some of them were authors in the New Testament. And so they convey the love of Christ, and that shows that they're abiding in him. And we display this love in our relationship to others, as Jesus mentions here again. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And tell you right now, you can't do it in the flesh. You can only do it in the power of God's Spirit. So this is one of the chief commandments we have, and one of the chief fruit of the Spirit is to love one another unselfishly and be a servant of the Lord. The fourth thing we find here is in verse 10, also in verse 14, and that is, uh, in the context we see here, uh, commandments. So a fruitful disciple obeys Christ's commands. And we have that chief one here to love uh, uh, one another. And of course, uh, if we counted them all, there's about 613 of them in the Bible, uh, plus a lot of principles we must live by. But again, we cannot do this if we're not abiding in the vine, if we're not trusting the power of Christ and his Holy Spirit to change us and to help us to be obedient. So abiding in Christ here uh, and demonstrating love are framed in the form of commandments. And keeping the Lord's commandments is an evidence of abiding in Christ and following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And loving one another is the primary commandment, as we've read here also in verse 17. And a, a chief demonstration of our love for Christ is to obey him. And if we back up a little bit to chapter 14, Jesus has mentioned this. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So if you say you love the Lord, then you better be an obedient disciple and trust him to help you uh, be one who obeys all of his commandments. We also see in verse 11 that a fruitful disciple experiences fullness of joy. So here again, we have a couple of the fruit we find in Paul's description in Galatians, love and joy. And all of you know that uh, joy is not the same thing as happiness because uh, happiness ebbs and flows. It can change. Our feelings uh, uh, probably go up and down, fluctuate almost every day. But we don't base our relationship to God on how we feel. We base it on the reality of what the Word of God says. Joy is a settled condition of peace and tranquility, knowing that Jesus has saved you and he's abiding with you no matter what you may be experiencing in your daily life. And he wants you to have that joy and experience it every day. And again, uh, we've been studying Philippians in our uh, Sunday school class, and that is a joyful epistle. But remember where uh, Paul was when he wrote it. He was uh, chained to a 
Praetorian Guard 24-7, and yet he could have joy in those circumstances. We also see here that a fruitful disciple shares an intimate relationship with Christ. Now that's obvious on several levels, but look at verse 14. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. So there again, if you want to be Christ's friend, then obey him. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. So now you're in a friendship relationship with Christ rather than a hostile relationship with Christ. And as a friend, he does not look at you as his slave, but as a friend. In a sense, on equal terms, so that he can share with you everything about who he is and what he has done. And that's really contained in the whole word of God. Now, obviously, uh, from other passages of scripture, uh, scripture, we certainly ought to be the servants of Christ, the bond slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was his attitude, according to Philippians chapter 2. So we adopt that attitude. But Jesus is looking uh, at us, not as his personal slaves, but as his friends. And he shares everything about who he is and what he desires for us in his word. And so that's an intimate relationship, a friendship relationship, not, as, uh, not so much as a master-slave relationship. <clears throat> and finally this morning, from verse 16, a fruitful disciple witnesses to the world. Take a look there at uh, uh, verse 16. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that's an important concept there. When we got saved, from our perspective, we chose God. But long before we were ever born, before the world was created, God chose us. He chose you to be saved. So he does the choosing first and then uh, provides the circumstances in life where we come to understand who he is, who we are, what we need, and we come to him in repentance, and we, we trust Christ as our Savior. But what, what's the purpose of the choosing here as he shares this with his disciples? Because he appointed them to something specific, and that was to go and bear fruit. Not just bear fruit, but to go and bear fruit. So that suggests to me that there's more to this bearing of fruit than the, the personal walk with Christ, the, the growth of all the qualities of the Christian life, to sharing those, to going and bearing fruit in the sense of telling others about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it won't be long before he says that to them after he's raised from the dead. Every one of the Gospels in the book of Acts says you need to go and you need to preach and uh, you're going to bear fruit. Of course, the fruit is in the hands of the Lord there. But this suggests to us that we go out into the world and we bear fruit before the world in the way that we live, but also we're bearing fruit as we're trying to reach people for the Lord Jesus Christ. So that indicates our fruit is outward as well as inward. And the true vine who gives us life gives us the capacity 
to do that. Now, this whole sermon is one of application. There's nothing that I've told you that you probably don't already know. So let me ask this morning, do you know for sure you're in the vine? Have you trusted the Lord Jesus as your Savior? Are you abiding and resting in his work for you on the cross of Calvary? Are you saved this morning? And the best way to tell if you are a true professor of Christ is that you're beginning to bear fruit and even more fruit in your life as you age, as you grow older in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of those evidences of fruitful discipleship are listed here. And as you assess or reassess your relationship to the Lord this morning, to the true vine, is there any pruning that needs to be done? Let's ask the Lord to help us measure up to these different evidences of the fruitful disciple as we come before his table. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful for your word, for what it teaches us. And we pray, Lord, that you will help us through your spirit to be obedient to that word. Help us, Lord, to be conscious of abiding in Christ each day. And as we do, Lord, help us to realize uh, the fruit that we ought to bear and uh, keep on bearing and increase as we get older in Christ. We just pray your blessing as we come before your table in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.